Continuing our series through the book of Mark. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. My wife prides herself very much on her ability to pick out a good watermelon. If we are ever in a setting where she has provided the watermelon and she hears someone from across the room just giving a hint that they really like the watermelon. Wow, this watermelon's really good. It's like she's floating on air. You can just see it in her face. Her whole countenance changes. It's exactly what she wanted to hear in that moment. If I were to list out what I think the hierarchy of things that my wife loves to hear, I think number one would be destiny. I love you. If if I said that, that to her. Number two would be mama, if JC said that. Number three would be, boy, that's some good watermelon. (laughs) Anyone could say that. In fact, the, the less she knows you, the better. If it's a stranger who says it, she even prefers it that way because then she knows it's actually the watermelon. It's nothing to do with her. She loves good watermelon. She prides herself on it. She's good at it. I, on the other hand, stink at picking out fruit of any kind. I just, it doesn't matter to me. If they're still selling it in the store, if it is legal for them to give me that piece of fruit, it's probably good enough. I'm not going to take the time, the effort to try to figure out which one's better. I'll grab whichever one's on the top of the stack and I'll keep going. And after watching her method... I think I figured out what it takes to be good at picking out fruit. I think, first of all, you have to care. You have to want a good piece of fruit. You have to be looking for it. You can't just grab the top one off the stack. But you also have to know specifically what you're looking for. I want this color, not this one. This size and shape, not this one. This hardness or softness, not this one. But you also have to have the power to make the choice happen. Destiny cannot send me to the store to get her watermelon. It's impossible. I'm not going to look at the stack and get the one that she would have gotten. But if she goes, 
If she has the power to say, this is the one that we're buying, this is the one we're taking home, then we're going to end up with a good one. In our text today, in a lot of ways, Jesus is at the supermarket. And from his visit to the supermarket, in his search for fruit, we are shown three truths regarding fruit in the Christian life. He's looking for fruit. He's desiring a very specific type of fruit. And he is the one who ultimately can make this happen. We see three truths regarding fruit in the Christian life. The first truth regarding fruit in the Christian life that we can see from our text this morning is that Jesus is looking for fruit. He's actively doing that. And that search begins with his own house. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Last week, we covered Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. There were palm branches, people shouting, Hosanna. He was on a donkey. He was announcing to anyone who was paying any attention that he was the Messiah who has come to rule and to save. And as he enters Jerusalem, he continues all the way up and into the temple before he leaves. And his inspection, it wasn't just to marvel at the temple's architecture. He didn't just look around and say, wow, these are some sturdy pillars. He was inspecting it like a homeowner who has tenants living in his house. He wasn't a tourist to look around and take pictures. He was inspecting it to see the condition of his house. It was his place. These people were merely renting it. These people were merely occupying some space inside it. And in today's text, Mark is going to use the idea of the fig tree's fruit to reveal something about Christ's desire for Christian fruit, the fruit of the Spirit that's born out in the lives of his people. So I don't think it's coincidence that we, what, what we actually get in this text are two sandwiched stories in Mark 11. He enters and goes to the temple. He looks for fruit at the fig tree. He goes back to the temple. He goes back to the fig tree. I think we're seeing these things in parallel because each is telling us something about the other. Just as he was about to go to the fig tree looking for literal fruit, he is first approaching the temple and looking for spiritual fruit. His inspection begins. It's focused on his own house, his own people. It begins among his own people in his own place at the temple. And when he looks, he is expecting to find a specific kind of fruit among his people. Look at verses 12 and 13. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He's looking, expecting to find fruit, and finds nothing. The fig tree was in leaf. Now, we know it wasn't the season for figs, and Jesus would have known that too, but he approaches the tree anyway, apparently expecting there should be figs here. He doesn't do that because he knows it's the season for figs. He knows it's not the season for figs. He's approaching the tree because from a distance, it looks like a tree that should have figs on it. It looks like a healthy tree. It's in leaf. If you didn't know that it wasn't the season for figs, you would have no way of knowing that that tree isn't going to have figs on it because it's in leaf. It looks like it should be bearing fruit. It has the appearance of health. But when he arrives, when he gets there, there are no figs to be had. You see, from a distance, it looks like a tree that would be bearing fruit. But on further inspection, 
up close and personal, when you actually are there to be able to receive that fruit, it's barren. It's worthless. And in a lot of ways, that's the same way that Jesus found his people when he arrived. When he went around and inspected his temple, his people. The Jewish people were still, for the most part, observing the law. They were still going through the motions of everything that they had been told to do. They were observing the practices, holding to the traditions. But on the inside, they were whitewashed tombs. There was no fruit in their lives. They had no zeal, no real love for God, no desire to actually worship him and serve him as if he is God. Their hearts, just like the fig tree, were barren. And Mark is presenting this story with a direct parallel back to Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, which should be on the screens behind me. It says this, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. You see, in Jeremiah chapter 8, the leaders of the people are supposed to be leading them toward fruit. They're supposed to be leading them toward what God has asked of them. But they're lying to them, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're saying, you're fine, keep going. When they're not fine, they shouldn't keep going. When God would come and gather them, there's no fruit to be had, no figs on the fig tree. And so, when Jesus sees this case, both among his people and in the fig tree, he curses the tree, verse 14. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. He said, look, if you're not going to fulfill your purpose, of what use are you? If you're not going to have fruit when people need fruit and you look like you should have fruit, what good are you? You're supposed to be giving us figs. Look, if Jesus had wanted leaves from this tree, he would have planted whatever is in my backyard. Because there's only leaves on it all the time. In the fall, there's leaves up to my knees. And that's all we get from that stupid tree in my backyard. But he didn't plant a leaf tree. He didn't want a leaf tree. He said, you're a fig tree. You're supposed to be giving me figs. You are my people. You're supposed to be bearing my fruit. If you're not going to bear fruit, I don't need you. I don't need this tree. And this, by the way, is the only instance of Jesus ever cursing an object in his ministry. He's usually healing. He's usually restoring. He's multiplying the objects. He's got one loaf of bread, and all of a sudden it's feeding thousands. And even when he gives a warning to his people, it's usually just a warning. You may be cursed if you continue. He doesn't go to the full-on extent of actually cursing. But to show us his disdain for that which does not produce fruit, that which should be producing fruit, that which looks like it has fruit but doesn't, he curses the fig tree. He's symbolically showing us, his people, that there is a coming judgment for all who claim to be followers of God. But actually, with their lives, they completely ignore him. And if we're not careful, we can read this text 
we can hear these words connected to the Jewish people whenever he entered Jerusalem, and we can say, man, how sad it is that those people in that time were like that, that they weren't bearing fruit, that if only they would have been uh, bearing fruit in their lives, then perhaps this story, this text, this whole week would have turned out way differently from Jesus. But the force of this story still holds true for us today. Judgment, the search for fruit, begins in the house of God. We as Christians can't allow ourselves to only have the appearance of spiritual fruit. We can't only look like we should have fruit in our lives. We have to actually be bearing fruit in our lives. We have to have been marked, changed by Christ and his gospel to the point that we are producing the kind of life, the kind of fruit that he's actually looking for. And when it comes to the lives of his people, the most basic fruit that he's searching for, the most basic thing he's looking for when he approaches his people is the fruit of repentance. We know that from uh, Matthew 3. We know that we're meant to bear fruit in our lives in keeping with repentance. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 3 when he's talking to the Pharisees and he's admonishing them. He's calling them a brood of vipers saying that though they are the ones who are supposed to be the most holy, they have no holiness at all to be had. They aren't living the kind of lives that he has called them to live. He says this in Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Bear fruit, how? In keeping with repentance. The fruit of repentance is the first and foremost fruit that he's looking looking for in the lives of his people. He says, don't claim to be a child of Abraham. Don't claim to be a Christian. Don't claim to be following me if there's zero fruit in your life. If there's zero repentance in your life. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's asking for. He's looking for fruit beginning in his own house among his own people. And when he doesn't find that which he's looking for, he is cutting off that which is not producing. He says, of what use are you? Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But that's not the only fruit that he desires. He's also looking for the fruit of all the nations. That's the second truth regarding fruit in the Christian life from our text, that Jesus desires fruit from all the nations. We see the the parallel picture between the fig tree and his people continue in verses 15 and 16. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. When he inspected the temple on the day before, he must not have liked what he see, what he saw. From a distance, the temple looked like a place that would be filled with the worshipers of God. It looked like a place that would be bearing fruit in line with repentance. It looked like it was a it was a tree that would be bearing fruit. But on a closer look, Jesus didn't find what he was looking for when he got there. It's important for you to know the the basic layout of the temple at this time. There were basically concentric layers, concentric courtyards within the temple. You had the most intimate layer, the Holy of Holies. 
That was a place where the presence of God came down and dwelt with his people. The high priest could only go in there, and he could only go in there once each year. That was the, the smallest pocket of the presence of God in the temple. Outside of that, you had another courtyard. This was a courtyard for the rest of the priests. They were out there performing sacrifices, doing their job as the priests, making sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people. The Jewish men could enter into there to bring their sacrifice, be sacrificed for, and then leave. That was the, the second courtyard. Then there was another courtyard, the courtyard of the, the women and the, anyone else who had special circumstances in that time. If they were a leper, if they, had, uh, if they were under a vow, they had to stay in that courtyard. They couldn't continue in. That was as far as women could go, and that was the space for them to come in and worship. And for most of the Jewish people, they understood these three layers as making up, that's the temple. That's where it stops. That's as far as the, the presence of God goes. But outside of that courtyard was one more larger courtyard. It was way bigger than the rest of them. It made up the entire temple complex. The rest of it was functionally a building, but this was like a big gate, big walls going around the entire temple mount. And that place was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was specifically laid out. It was specifically given as a place for those who were not Jews to come and still worship God. And when Jesus enters in, in verse 15, and starts driving out the money changers, when he turns over the tables, turns over the seats of those on whom uh, were selling the pigeons, he did that in the court of the Gentiles. That's the place. It was the only place for those who were not part of ethnic Israel to come and to worship God. That's where he did this act of turning over the money tables. The Jews had basically set up a market in that spot. They were buying and selling the animals that were necessary, not for the Gentiles to come and perform their sacrifices, but for the Jews to come in and perform their sacrifices, to perform the rites of the Passover festival. They had set up that space, that market, right in the only spot that Gentiles had to come and worship God. You see, what makes him so angry? What makes him turn over the tables? What makes him keep anyone from walking through there is that he doesn't find what he's looking for. He doesn't find what he hopes to see when he enters his house. What he desires, what he wants when he walks in is the fruit of his worship from all the nations. He should walk in and see Samaritans and Romans and people from all throughout the Decapolis coming in and worshiping him, preparing to celebrate the festival of the Passover alongside the Jews. Even though they can't go all the way into the temple, they can still enter the court of the Gentiles and worship in that place. And he expects, when he walks into the court of the Gentiles, to see all of the nations streaming in to worship him and who he is. And instead, what does he find when he gets there? Cash registers. He finds hay. Seed, livestock, pigeons, and all the things that come with those. He finds the people who claim to be his not creating space for the nations, not bringing those outside of ethnic Israel into the worship of their God, but rather taking up the space that's supposed to be there for them, taking up the space of these other people with dirt, with filth, with a cattle barn, And so what does Jesus do when he sees that? He goes in and says, okay, you are not making space for them. I will. He makes space for the Gentiles. He makes room for them. 
He turns the tables over and drives out all the animals. No one gets to walk through here. No one gets to come through this space carrying something. In the only spurt of anything close to violence that we see out of Jesus throughout his entire life, out of great zeal for his own glory, for his own purposes in his own house, he pushes out the people who are claiming to worship him without actually doing anything that he's told them to do. And he does so to make space for the people to come in and truly worship him. For all people to come in and truly worship him. He will make the space for them. And there's a lesson here for us. I I do think that part of the fruit that he was looking for was personal holiness in the lives of the Jewish people. Personal holiness in the lives of those people and their rulers. He did want the fruit of repentance. But that's not directly what angers him in this text. What he wanted to see, what he was looking for, was the conversion of non-believing Gentiles from every race. From every people group. And when he sees that his people have shut the doors on them. When he sees that they are saying, nope, we're the only people who can come in here and worship God. We're the only ones who get to come in here and do these things. He's our God. He's not yours. When he sees that reaction among his people, that's what set him off. You have to wonder... What would Jesus think if he walked through our doors on a Sunday? If he walked through the doors of any of the churches in town on a Sunday? Would he see us intentionally, purposely, calling out and welcoming in non-believers? Come, hear the good news. Come, worship our God. He is our God, but he's yours too if you will only repent and believe. Would he see us making space for them to come in? Would he see us evangelizing them in our personal lives? Telling them there is a place for you here among us. No, you don't get to stay as you are. You come as you are and you're transformed into his image. But that image is exactly what you're designed to be. Come, worship him, repent, believe in the God who loves you enough to save you. Would he see us making space for them in our worship? People from other walks of life. People from other races, other classes. Here, in this place. Or, would he see us, not with our words, we would never say it out loud, but with our actions, silently telling them, signaling to them, no, there's no space for you here. There's not a place for you among us. We have to take this text to the fullest extent that it's given and understand that we have to make space for those people who are supposed to be worshiping God and aren't. We have to make space for the people who aren't already a part of us to come in, to join, to worship. We don't have layers of the temple here. Anyone can come in. Everyone has full access. And we've got to be making them aware of that. We've got to let them know. We've got to bring them in, make them know, yes, this is the place. Come and join us. You're a sinner. We are too. No, we don't continue in our sin, but come in, be changed, repent, believe. We have to create space for them. And if that sounds, I don't know, woke to you, if that sounds like me saying something I shouldn't say, let me just lovingly push back against that notion. Because unity in diversity 
wasn't made up by those who are woke. Unity and diversity is the design of God. It was always the plan. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting back to them from Isaiah 56, verses uh, 6 through 8, which say this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The foreigners, those who believe what we believe, can come in, have full access. It's a house of prayer for all the nations. Because he is making a new people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood among his people. All are welcome. There are those who are the outcasts of Israel, but I will gather yet others to him. Besides those who have already gathered. The gathering of other peoples in worship of God at the temple, that was always supposed to happen. That house of prayer is to be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Both the outcasts of Israel and others besides those who have already been gathered. We, as his church, are to be an ever-expanding community of welcome. That there is no one outside the bounds of who we would accept here. And that has always been the plan. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's worshipers. The covenant that God gave to Abraham is to make him a great nation, which shall bless all nations. The law was given to make Israel an example to the nations around them. They were supposed to have a kingdom to be like a city on a hill, shining out as an example among the other nations. Isaiah here prophesied that the other nations would come in, that they would join Israel in God's worship. Jesus told his disciples before he left to make disciples of who? All the nations. He said, I'm not going to return until the gospel has been preached everywhere. In Revelation, at the end, the final design, we see that there are people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping God at his throne. When you read the Bible, you cannot miss God's plan for the nations. It's there from beginning to end. And we are his plan for accomplishing that purpose. We are his method. We are his tool. We, his people, That's how he's going to do it. So when he walks in, and instead of seeing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him in his temple, and when he, instead of seeing that, sees cash registers, sees animals, you bet he's hacked. When he sees pigeons in the place of the Gentiles who are supposed to come in and worship him, yes, he's furious. He drives them out. The fruit he desires is the fruit of personal holiness, but he desires that fruit of personal holiness from all people, all the nations. And if that sounds like too tall an order, if that sounds like he has given us something that we will not be able to abide by, something we won't have the power to accomplish, we're in luck. 
Because just as Jesus desires that fruit, he also gives the power for that fruit. That's the third and final truth about the, tru- about the fruit of the Christian life in our text. Jesus gives the power for fruit. And because he provides the power for production, we see that he will follow through in cutting off anything that does not produce. Look at verses 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Just as he said what happened, the fig tree will never again produce fruit for anyone to eat. He's judged it worthless. He no longer has any use for it. So it withers, and it withers all the way to the roots. When he removes his power, when he removes his life-giving focus from that tree, there's no life left for it to enjoy, and so it dies. And he explains that his power, which can give life and take it away, has no bounds, has nothing that it can't accomplish. There's nothing outside of that power that can give life and take it away. Nothing's beyond the abilities of God. Look at verses 22 and 23. And Jesus answered them, having seen the fig tree being withered to the roots, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, we have to understand what he's saying there in context, right? This isn't a blank check that he's giving to his people to just go out and do some landscaping. If you, this afternoon, go out to Petty Jean and try to get it to come to Conway, maybe this is me doubting in my heart, but I don't think that's going to work. I don't think it's going to happen. But he is saying that you are going to have the power to accomplish that which he is desiring. That have faith in God, pray, and whatever you ask will be accomplished Because you are able to produce fruit like what I was looking for from the fig tree. Saying anything that he's asking for, anything he's looking for, the fruit of personal holiness and the lives of his people, leading to the conversion of the unbeliever, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to worship him, that is not too much for you to receive. That is more than enough for him to grant. It may sometimes feel like it's too big of an ask of us. It might feel like there are too many barriers in our way. Our sin is too much. Our hearts are too hard. We've shared our faith so many times, and we've had so few results. Where do we even start with something like this? How can I, as one person in Conway, Arkansas, possibly bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into the worship of God? I am one person with a few short years, and I don't know that many people from Zimbabwe. How can we do this? It can feel daunting. But he is reminding us that it's not our power, it's not our ability that does the work. It's his. So the mountain of our own sin, the mountain between us and the non-believer, that mountain, those things in our way, that can be cast into the sea. Not through our strength, not through our abilities, but through his. So our response to that truth should be to pray for fruit. We should pray for this specific kind of fruit in our lives, both our own personal holiness and repentance, but also that from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 
if he's the one looking for this fruit, if he's the one desiring this fruit, and it's by his power that the fruit actually appears, then all we have to do is be faithful. All we have to do is keep going. All we have to do is be obedient to what he has asked us to do and be. We have faith in God. We ask in prayer. We believe that he will grant these requests for his own glory and for the good of his people. And that's our way forward. We believe, we pray, we trust, and we keep going. That's how the mountains move. That's how he accomplishes his purposes. That's how he saves people from all over the world. And those mountains can move not only in bringing to faith the unbeliever, the person from some other race, some other social class than ours, it can be moved even in our own lives. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He's saying, look, I moved the mountain of your sin out of the way to save you. So believe that I can also do that for someone else. And you should be forgiving someone else in that same way. If we're paying attention, this last verse kind of seems out of place. Mark's been connecting the faithlessness of the Jewish people in failing to produce the fruit of repentance, both among themselves and the surrounding peoples, with a barren fig tree. And now at the end, he just kind of throws in a verse about forgiveness, it feels like. But I think what Jesus is showing us through Mark is that the biggest barrier to our own faithfulness, the biggest problem in our way, to our own ability to bear fruit, it's way less about our abilities. It's way less about the power to do it. It's way less about knowledge, about knowing what to do. Our biggest problem, the thing in our way the most, is our hearts. We need hearts molded by the grace of God. I think that's what we're lacking to bear fruit in the Christian life. Pray that you will be faithful to produce this fruit. And pray also that you will forgive others as God forgave you. Because being a person washed in the grace of God through Jesus Christ, being a person marinated by his goodness and mercy, that's how you start to move forward. That's how you start bearing the fruit of repentance, not only in your life, but also in the lives of others around you. That's how you bring others with you in the Christian life. You have to be steeped in it. You have to be surrounded by it. But you can't be a person who's marinated in the grace of God, who's marked by that, who when you're squeezed, the gospel is what comes out. You can't be the one bringing others into that grace if you haven't first received it yourself. If you have never come to terms with the truth that the perfect God made you and loves you, and you responded to that perfect love with your sin, with your disobedience, with your rebellion, that because of that sin, because of who you are and what you've done, what you deserve is to die a terrible, eternal death in a very real place called hell. But God. But God who loved you, rather than allowing you to receive what you deserve, the perfect and loving God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live that perfect life that you should have lived and didn't. To die the death that you deserved to die and didn't in your place. Instead of just giving you a clean slate through his life and death. 
instead of just putting it back on you to try to now work and earn what he has done for you, instead of just paying for your sin, he also rose from the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He won for you the promise of eternal life with him in heaven. All that's left for you now to do is to respond to that message. To hear it, accept it, believing it is true, and moving forward that is not only true out there somewhere, but it's true for you. That when he died, he died for you. And you continue in that belief through to repentance. That you no longer run toward your rebellion and disobedience, but you turn away from it. It has marked your life up to this point. And now, rather than continuing in your sin, you continue in his commands and in his righteousness. That's how you receive the fruit of the gospel for yourself. That's how you begin to be marinated in the grace of God, that you might bear the fruit that Christ is looking for. Because receiving this gospel is the first step toward bearing Christ's fruit. You can continue a life of obedience and repentance for the rest of your days. And as you do so, as you continue to move forward, pray for the fruit of the Spirit. Pray for the fruit of holiness, the fruit of conversions of those non-believers around you. And as God continues to grant each of those requests, you can give to Jesus the fruit that he's looking for, the fruit of the nations that he desires, by trusting in the power that he has given you to provide that fruit. That's how we make sure that Christ has a successful trip to the supermarket. That he finds the fruit he's looking for when he finds us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for creating space for those who don't believe in you to come in and believe. Because without that space, none of us would be here. Thank you for accepting not only the Jew, but the Gentile. Because without that, we wouldn't be here. Thank you for giving us the power, the ability, through your spirit, to bear the fruit that you're looking for. Thank you for calling us into this task. Calling us into your purpose and your plan to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that they might worship you and glorify you just as you have purposed for us to do. Help for us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, remembering that judgment begins in the house of God, that we have to bear fruit in our own personal lives. And as we do so, we can trust and know that he who started the work will be faithful to complete it in us. We love you and we thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us the fruit of your spirit that we might live lives which please you and provide the fruit that you're looking for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me as we sing Come Behold the Wonders Mystery again. <laughs>